Welcome to this podcast series supported by Longwoods Publishing. We want to bring you a series of stimulating conversations with leaders and researchers within the nursing profession and the health care system in Canada. I am your host, Kathleen McMillan, a nurse with over 50 years experience in the profession who has held roles in academia, administration and policy, as well as clinical practice. What have we learned from the experience with COVID-19 pandemic that can build resilience for any future shock on this scale to the system? Today's topic relates to the health of senior nurse leaders. And the uh, title of our, our topic today is The Last Casualty of the Pandemic. Canada's nurses. We have two excellent colleagues here with us today to talk about their experiences. Uh, the first individual that I'll introduce you to is Rue Tagger, and Rue is a registered nurse with a master's in nursing, and she holds an adjunct clinical appointment at the Lawrence Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing at the University of Toronto. Rue is the Executive Vice President, Chief of Nursing and Health Professions, and an executive at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Rue provides professional practice leadership to nurses and other health professionals, and she also provides executive leadership to the hospital's Tory Trauma, the Dan um, Women and Babies Centre, the Schulich Heart and uh, Holland Bone and Joint Programs, so she has quite a wide span of control there. And uh, with us also is Irene Andrus, uh, who is uh, a Vice President for Programs and Services and Chief Nurse Executive at Holland Blurview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital in Toronto. She holds a master's in nursing from the University of Toronto. Also, her undergraduate nursing degree was from Ryerson University. And she has uh, also is a graduate of the Rotman uh, School of Management Advanced Healthcare and Senior Leadership Program. So welcome colleagues to this um, discussion this morning. I'm so pleased that you were able to join me because I know how busy you are and it is a, a real gift that you're able to share your experiences with us today. The uh, nursing was largely represented in news items by bedside critical care or ER nurses who described how difficult the situation was. Uh, can you tell me how nurse executives uh, were sought for their opinions by the media during the pandemic? Kathleen, uh, maybe I'll start off. Uh, what I would say is, as chief nursing executives uh, and and looking at where we're situated in the healthcare system, often organizations um, select their spokespeople from audiences who have an expertise in the topic area. And so during the pandemic, I would say that for the most part, physicians with a subspecialty specialty in infection prevention and control were, were the ones sought after in the media. But in terms of, you know, really what we were doing as chief nurses, and specifically, what we're accountable for is, is the larger system view. And so many of us were at the, at the point of care, um, really supporting our, the nurses within the organizations that we serve, looking at how to best shape our policies and practices to support um, the patients and families that we were seeing at a time where really things were changing so rapidly. We really, you know, all of my colleagues were either in acute care, they were on the, the you know, the front uh, responses of the long-term care tragedies that occurred. Many of them were putting together systems and teams 
on the fly. So I would say that we were knee deep in, in response uh, for the most part uh, and during all the waves. So, it, you know, as I said, sort of in the eye of the storm and uh, just, you know, heads down and, and trying to manage the safety um, of the situation as best you could. Rudy, have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly uh, add to the point about being in the eye of the storm. So as Irene said, I mean, locally within our individual institutions, we were playing leadership roles in, in terms of helping with processes and practices and making key decisions that had implications related to PPE use or uh, vaccination distribution and so on. I'd also say that regionally and provincially, chief nurses were quite prominent in terms of making decisions. And let me just give you some examples. In, in the area where we work, in the province where we were, there were chief nurses helping to assist in decision-making about ICU capacity. So where did we need to create additional ICU beds mm-hmm. and uh, allocating the, the uh, capacity uh, across the region? We were also giving direct advice to the highest level of government related to health human resource matters and challenges. And so we were advising federal governments as well as provincial governments regarding the health human resource crisis. And that that is continuing to happen. We also saw chief nurses, as Irene said, leading discussions across sectors, such as with long-term care Mm -hmm. and looking at ways in which we could support other sectors with health human resources and other types of supports and sort of leading the way in terms of determining what supports they needed and putting them in place. So I would say that it was multifaceted in terms of how we provided support. It was local, it was regional, it was provincial as well. And it was in the area of advocacy, decision-making from a system perspective, and then local decision-making and operational support where required and professional practice support. And, And I think I would add to that, also our lobby was to support the academic teaching settings as well. Because at the same time, our learners were also not allowed into the clinical settings. And so many of us were trying to create structures and processes to support access because we have the long view. We knew that if if these nurses did not have access to the clinical settings, it would definitely affect our ability to recruit and access the healthcare providers that we needed post-pandemic. And so we were very focused on working across sectors as well. Okay. I think I think both of you would agree that your role was to apply the best available evidence to uh, mitigate risk and promote safety for both patients and, uh, and staff in the system. What was your daily reality as a leader in the early days of the pandemic when we didn't have a lot of information? So I would say, from my perspective, the focus was around putting practices and processes in place to support safety, safety for our staff and safety for our patients. And in order to do that, we were liaising with key experts such as infection prevention and control colleagues. And also we were liaising with our hospital partners. We wanted to make sure that whatever decision we were making was consistent across the healthcare system and that we weren't making decisions in isolation. So decisions related to PPE use or uh, visitor restrictions were all made together as a group. And so we had a regional model. We had a regional table where we would come together and have those discussions, agree on an approach, 
get advice from the experts that were made available to us. And it was best available advice at the time. And it was changing quite often, as we all know and uh, experienced, and then collectively sort of deciding on the on the best approach. And Irene, why did you think that was really important that there be uh, cooperation and collaboration and uh, consistency in the information and the approaches that the various organizations were taking? Well, because similar to SARS, we were learning you know, mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. how this this virus was working. And so I remember the long days. I remember seven days a week, huddles and structure, structured meetings to just stay on top of what was being learned every day. The exhaustion that comes from trying to absorb all of this information coming from various um places in the system, but it was critical because for us, we we were cross-pollinating what we were hearing at various tables. And so we knew often that, you know, IPAC professionals may have been on one side of the table and union leaders were on other sides of the table. And what we were trying to do is really see the merits of both arguments and trying to figure out how to best Uh, support safety for everyone. And so, you know, there was also a a research study done during this time just after, I think it was wave two, the summer 2020, uh, Leanne Jeffs Mm -hmm. gathered the insights of a number of CNEs. And really what we were doing at that time, we were trying to build trust. When people trust you, they tell you things. And, and that learning, that knowledge was so important to bring to the table so that you brought the, the face of what was going on at the point of care. Obviously, maintaining resilience through all of this, it's, it's exhausting uh, when you, your workplace keeps changing. You could see people coming to work 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock. They're just exhausted. And then they'd have to relearn everything that might have changed since the last shift they worked and really having that presence and visibility because people relied on us because they they trust us and relied on us to have their voice but also to bring them information so we're often the conduits of that knowledge um, getting through the system one of the things that of course both of you were in the Toronto region and both of you are involved in the Toronto Academic Health Science Centre group Um, You had a network already in place that would assist you with gathering information and disseminating it. That wouldn't be the case necessarily across the country. I think that many chief nurse executives in some rural settings or in some parts of the country would not have had the same benefit of uh, that kind of a resource. Can you talk a little about about that, Rue? Can you share a little bit about the value of that network and connection? Yeah, I mean, it was extremely valuable. I mean, there were days in which we were touching base with each other three or four times a day, sort of saying, okay, so, you know, how are you approaching this matter in your institution? What are the factors that you're considering? So there was the power of being able to liaise with your colleagues and sort of share thought processes and bounce ideas off each other was, I mean, it, it, it really helped in terms of making rapid decisions, consistent decisions, and being as clear as we could in terms of communicating those decisions with our staff. And so it, it had a huge amount of influence and a huge amount of power that 
it's just hard to put in words how how effective it was to have that system support system quite frankly um how did that help you in terms of speaking truth to power for example with um higher level decision makers during the crisis well i mean it gave it, it gave us a broader uh it gave me a broader perspective i mean so when i was when I was speaking um, to government, for example, or other decision-making bodies that had a huge amount of influence around how we were uh, mm-hmm. responding, I mean, to collective, to bring a collective voice to the table and that represented a number of stakeholders and not just, you know, the view of our organization, I think, I think lended itself to a huge amount of credibility and effective decision making, quite frankly. We all, we didn't always get it right as a, as a province, as as I know we, we experienced nationally. Um, but I think what we did get right was the collaboration and that was created um, from the region that we were working in. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the structures that we had put in place to ensure that that collaborative approach was happening. Uh, so uh, I think when um, we were, you know, kind of planning this session, you talked a little bit about that the collaboration wasn't just in Toronto and Ontario, that you were as a group able to support some of the chief nurse executives who were in smaller centres. Perhaps, Irene, you can talk a little bit about how you were able to do that. Sure. Well, two examples come to mind. Uh, early on, I think we started to realize that the knowledge that we might have had access to, let's say in the greater Toronto area, may not have been as accessible. And so we were able to influence uh, portals of information that uh, with, with expertise that was you know, available to us at, at uh, the University of Toronto, uh, within uh, the University Health Network, uh, within the Center for Interprofessional Practice. And so what we're able to do is then uh, work with those individuals to demonstrate that that knowledge was relevant to everybody. And so it became a prevent, pre- provincial um, resource mm-hmm. and then went on to become a national resource. And it, and it wasn't solely for the purpose of nursing. It became an interprofessional resource. So uh, again, it became a very, very important source of evidence-based uh, information. And and then, of course, the guidelines that were coming out and being developed over the four waves, um, those continue to be uh, refined and and shared openly. And so the knowledge and expertise that we've developed here are available to everyone. And and that was truly team-based. I've never seen guidelines and standards being developed uh, with that kind of speed um, and and inclusiveness and then disseminated that quickly as well because you know we often hear that it takes you know almost 20 years sometimes for new evidence to actually get implemented in practice so this was kind of warp speed <laughs> taking the yeah yeah very very good okay so um, how is advocacy from a professional association different from advocacy from a union particularly in who um, professional associations represent? and the kind of topics that they advocate on. Uh, Rue, can you comment a little bit about that to start? Yeah, I mean, from from my experience related to the pandemic, I I would say that the advocacy from the different groups, whether it be unions or professional associations, was very similar, quite frankly. What they were advocating for was aligned to what healthcare organizations were advocating for as well. So there wasn't a lot of divergent views, quite frankly. And let me give you some examples. 
PPE use, we were all sort of aligned. There were a little bit of questions from the union around some of the availability of certain types of PPE, but it was minor. And um, vaccination requirements, staffing redeployment, we were all in lockstep. We were very much aligned. So it does actually, it is a testament to how much there is alignment uh, across the nursing profession as it relates to key decisions. And where there were different views, it didn't hinder decision-making. It didn't slow slow down any decision-making in a detrimental way or compromise care in any way or the safety of our staff. More so, it actually added value in terms of bringing different perspectives to the table. Would you agree with that, Irene? Is that your experience in your organization too? Yeah, you know, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, I, I would say that the professional organizations also were a good source of advocacy for maybe uh, populations that uh, at the beginning were not identified as being more at risk. And so we've seen some of that advocacy before, but it was really strong. And for the first time in a, in a long time, we seem to have a more unified voice uh, in terms of uh, really being there for the stakeholders who are most important, that being the patients and families that we were serving and the staff professionals that we desperately needed uh, to be uh, working during that time. Mm-hmm. Now, generally, unions advocate for nurses who are employed in unionized organizations, and their focus is usually around you know, wages, benefits, and um, working conditions. And they don't represent, for example, nurses who are in leadership roles in an organization. And they don't represent academic nursing, um, you know, the professoriate and things like that. So, so um, one of the things that I do think that uh, is a value with professional associations is that it, those nurses and the nurses who are, are working um, clinically are all working together on similar kinds of uh, broader policy issues and bringing that diverse perspective. And right now in Canada, we're seeing some real challenges for professional associations as the regulatory structures change. And so not every jurisdiction had that kind of professional voice. For example, I I was working in Prince Edward Island at the time and uh, they'd just undergone a change where what used to be a joint um, professional association and regulatory body has split those functions and is now purely regulatory. So um, do you see any potential risks of that going forward when, you know, because in Ontario, you've got the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario that's been around since 1930 something, I think, or maybe even be earlier. And so you've got a longstanding professional voice there. Any thoughts on that? If you didn't have the RNAO, you know, would, would that have made a difference to your ability to be able to advocate for the profession? I mean, I would say there's always strength when you've got a number of organizations that are rowing in the same direction. So we were privileged in the fact that as it relates to the pandemic, we were all aligned. So uh, reflecting on the pandemic, there was actually strength. Yeah. uh, Having, you know, nursing associations, whether it be the RNAO or others that were, um, you know, advocating the same messages. You you might say we had a common enemy. Uh, in that we were all out uh, you know, right. to conquer COVID. And I think that really the best 
of us came forward from all of those perspectives. Yeah. And, and it was effective. Like the advocacy actually was making a difference. The associations, the unions, the healthcare organizations, they were getting heard. Um, so I, I think that collective effort and the aligned messaging really did make a difference in, yeah. in terms of rapid policy decision-making. There's a benefit to that, um, you know, uh, different voices coming together and having, you know, delivering the same messages. I think that that is a benefit in terms of uh, advocacy, not only for the profession, but for the people receiving nursing care. Mm-hmm. And the college, I remember when the college came out with statements to say, you know, these are unprecedented times. Yeah. We will be there to support you. Yeah. So, you know, we're asking you to do things that we've never asked you to do before. Uh, so I think really it was an overall um, really effective team-based approach. Um, one of the uh, observations um, that I've had during the pandemic was that um, middle management leaders, you know, n- nurses who manage in nursing units um, or nursing directors uh, in charge of programs, uh, were juggling many demands and um, were experiencing significant pressures uh, because they were really almost at the coal face, as you as you might say, of um, the the pressures in the system. How do we select and prepare and support? middle managers to be successful in their roles um, of leading teams of professionals uh, who are knowledge workers. So it's it's not quite the same thing as, as managing other types. I'm going to get you to start that, um, Irene, because of your background with the Rotman um, Leadership Program. Well, I would say that, you know, in times of pandemics or crisis, it is a command and control uh, kind of environment. Uh, I, I'm not. I think it's necessary for short periods of time, but not where leaders really thrive in, in the long, you know, for the long game. I was shocked recently uh, in when I heard Michael Villeneuve um, speak uh, that you know, 70, upwards of seventy percent of managers, leaders in nursing had no formal leadership education prior to becoming. Uh, leaders. And frankly, I'm shocked by that. Maybe I shouldn't be. You know, when I was a fledgling leader, I was hungry uh, to to learn about management and leadership. I took it upon myself to ask for access to any course that I could get into for mentorship, etc. And I'm not sure what's happened today. Maybe it is access. Maybe we just don't have access to the same kind. Either it's time. I'm I'm not sure what's happened. But we do, our professional organizations really need to focus there because the future of nursing leadership is something that I'm really concerned about. You know, many of us are are getting older and uh, we have to develop those succession plans. And I I, I, I'm hoping, I, I don't think that we've sold administration very well to nurses. I think they see us sometimes as not well-balanced individuals. Um, <laughs> and um, I think that we have to do a lot more to bring uh, the knowledge, the skill, and, and the role modeling to make that maybe a, a, a part of nursing practice that maybe has suffered a little bit um, in the last few years, so I think is probably what I would say starting off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think one of the things too that we don't necessarily convey to um, uh, leadership aspirants is the rewards of leadership. 
um, you know, we talk a lot about the responsibilities. But in my experience, you know, as somebody who, um, you know, has been in various roles, we tend to see a really outstanding clinician and we kind of say you'd be a good leader. But we don't necessarily know whether those characteristics of being a good clinician translate to being a good leader. Have you got any thoughts about that, Rue? Well, I mean, as I reflect on my experience during the pandemic, for me, I think, you know, and, and picking up on the theme that Irene talked about as it relates to role modeling, the feedback that I received from a lot of leaders was how they saw me as a role model. And so my insight related to it is, it was really, I, I realized during wave one, it was really important for me to set a leadership tone and style of confidence, trust, and transparency. And Irene's already alluded to that. And I found that our middle leaders were most effective when they understood where we were going and why and how to execute certain actions. And that really does come from, you know, setting the tone across the organization as a senior leader. So that really, you know, I gained an, a, a greater appreciation of, you know, the value of role modeling, particularly mm-hmm. uh, at a time where when there's deep stress and pressure. And I also gained a great perspective around the rewards of leadership, just to pick up on your point, Kathleen. For me, what was most rewarding was how inspirational this, our teams were. You know, mm-hmm. there were times when, they absolutely inspired me with their responses and and what they were willing to do. And just to give you a very quick example, long-term care, we were asked to go into long-term care and help support our uh, long-term care facilities within our province. And we were asked to do that by, by sending staff. And I remember when we sent out a message across the organization related to who would like to volunteer? And I remember saying to my colleague, I didn't expect anybody would. We were already dealing with our own pressures within our organization, which were highly stressful. And it absolutely inspired me about the number of people who actually volunteered, put up their hands and said, yeah, we'll go into long-term care. We need to help um, other organizations and support them. And we had 60 volunteers that gave me so much strength as a leader and the power of that, of that, of feeling inspired, even though we were in such stress and we were feeling a great amount of pressure in terms of making rapid decisions with not a lot of um, evidence or information really helped uh, give me a lot of strength. Well, I think that um, strength and inspiration needs to go up and down the the team, right? And um, yeah. and it's contagious when people feel hopeful and feel strong and feel able to um, take on the task. Uh, that's contagious. It's kind of like positive deviance, you know, <laughs> you, see, right. you see really good things happening. Getting back to that CNA survey of, of leaders and that 70% of people didn't feel well prepared for their roles, Um, I think it's not only the fact that we tend to select people on the basis of their clinical expertise for these roles, um, but also that the availability of leadership education, uh, you know, when you when you're in a large urban center, you have access to those things. But, uh, you know, in my experience uh, working at Dalhousie University as an academic and also um, being in Prince Edward Island, 
there, the access to graduate programs for nurses where you generally acquire this kind of um, knowledge and education or access to business schools, which some, some people choose to do, many of them didn't offer online learning until quite recently. You would have to basically relocate, relocate to an urban setting and be a full-time student. And uh, so in that way, I kind of, um, I think there was a challenge of two academic institutions to make these this kind of programming available in rural and remote parts of the country because there just is not the same um, level of access or even to programs like the Dorothy Wiley Nursing Leadership Institute. Um, you know, that tended to be mostly urban in terms of its offerings. So how do you ensure that people do have access to that kind of leadership development? Changing topics a, a bit, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, recruitment and retention in nursing, uh, because this is really getting a lot of headlines right now. And you alluded earlier that this is an ongoing challenge. One of the uh, things that uh, concerns me as somebody who's been in the profession for 50 years, and I think this is the third really severe nursing shortage crisis that I have seen. So it doesn't seem like we learn a lot from previous experiences. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what's what's concerning you about the recruitment and retention of nurses right now and um, and. Uh, with a focus on retention, I think how do we how do we keep those people in the system, the, especially mid career and experienced nurses? Um, Irene, do you want to start with that one? Sure. Um, so I I would I keep calling the nursing shortage a chronic condition, uh, not mm -hmm. not a, an acute condition. And uh, just recently, in speaking um, to my CEO, I said, you know this nursing shortage has been going on for a very long time and, and we knew it was coming and it probably is something we can never take our eyes off of. I, I guess retaining nurses and, and we're in a position now, you, you don't have to go very far where people are talking about burnout, um, the lack of balance that people have in their lives right now. Uh, everywhere, not just in healthcare. It's really, um, really messed us up. I would say that giving nurses, um, I would say a strong sense of purpose in their mm -hmm. work. You know, we've all, we, we all, you know, why did you go into nursing? I think going back to the why is really important. We've struggled with uh, manageable workloads. What does that mean? You know, we've been trying to measure that for years how to put some science around that. Um, what, what can we stop doing? What are the things that we have to let go of? Um, we're starting to recognize uh, the, the benefit of not just focusing on physical health, but mental health. Mm -hmm. And so the conversations that I'm hearing here at work uh, are a lot about that. And I, I see people every day saying, you know, I'm, I, need, I need a change to my work schedule. I'm not doing well. Mm -hmm. And people are acknowledging that. I, I think that's hugely beneficial for all of us to recognize that we're people mm -hmm. uh, and, and that the pandemic has really messed with, with our minds as well. I think checking in on people, Ruth said that too, our visibility uh, checking in with people when you can see that things aren't going so well and checking in with our managers and leaders, depending on where you're situated in the structure, we all have an accountability to do that. Um, empathy goes a long way. 
you know, just to say, hey, I've, I've been there before. Like, mm-hmm. tell me what's going on. Um, hybrid working conditions for those who can do it. I'm not sure that uh, point of care nurses have the same kind of um, benefit uh, to hybrid working conditions, but we need to look at that. And like you said, uh, Kathleen, the learning opportunities that we're going to have now, because those um, those learning uh, structures online are going to be much, much better now. Uh, people are learning how to learn remotely and virtually in the way that we can connect as people, not like we did before. So I think there's lots of opportunities to to reach out to uh, people that may not have had access before. And then I think we'll talk a little bit more about it, but to not lose the great things that we have gained through this pandemic. So I I think some of, I I have a lot of hope um, that that we have learned a lot um, through Mm -hmm. this. I'm glad you brought up the issue of workload and balance, because uh, one of the things that I think is that we don't really know what the extent of the nursing shortage, as we call it, is, because so many nurses have elected not to work full time as a strategy to cope. So we see a lot of people working 0.4, 0.6, 0.8 of an FTE, but they will not work full time. Um, because they, this gives them some kind of control over their um, work-life balance. And the pandemic put nurses in that awful position of trying to manage the risks at home and trying to make sure their children got their schoolwork done. And many of them, if they had somebody helping them clean house, the, the cleaner couldn't come in. Um, they have, were preparing extra meals, uh, trying to do work online if they were you know, working at home. And then we had the nurses who had, could not work at home and had to go in and out of a high-risk situation every day. So I think there's a, a lot of um, things that we need to know a bit more about in terms of workload and work-life balance for nurses. Rue, have you had any thoughts about some of that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just make a, cu- a couple of comments related to workload, and I agree with you absolutely. So I was just actually earlier today um, speaking to a couple of our nursing teams and getting their feedback around sort of what are they worried about the most. Mm-hmm. And there is a pervasive theme around workload, and, and our data actually shows that as well. So we are doing acuity-based staffing in our hospital, and um, so every day we're collecting data related to nursing acuity. And we have seen since the beginning of the pandemic that on our inpatient units, our acuity has doubled. Right. So the shortage of nursing has been compounded by the fact that we need more nurses just to deal with the, the highly acute patients, which have now doubled. Plus, we, you know, we went into the pandemic with a shortage of staff. So we are in a significant um, crisis in terms of not having enough nurses to care for the needs of our patients. Mm -hmm. So it definitely, and the nurses are telling us that they are seeing and feeling this each and every day. And that's what I'm hearing when I'm speaking to nursing teams. We're doing our best in terms of trying to um, address the issue. It's just not happening fast enough. And I don't think there's a quick fix to this. And as you said, Kathleen, I mean, we've experienced nursing shortages in the past. What is different now is we have highly acute patients sitting in hospitals, more acute than they have been in the past. Right. That's yeah. just making it more difficult. 
Yeah. No, I think I think we we're going to have to uh, really look at that if we want nurses, because part of me is concerned about the nurses who have chosen to work part time. This is going to affect their pension benefits when they retire. And you don't think about that necessarily when you're 30. We're potentially looking at poverty amongst retired nurses once they get older, especially single women. Um, You know, this is a big problem. It could become a big social problem. Uh, going forward. So based on your experience and leadership preparation colleagues, what three key messages do you have for decision makers that will contribute to resilience in the healthcare system going forward? It's a great question. And so from my perspective, my three points would be the first being let's harness the transformational good that did come out of the pandemic. And there was quite a bit of good that came out And uh, let me give you some examples of where I saw the good. I saw good as it related to hospitals being more open-minded to enabling flexibility for employees where they could, i.e. working from home and uh, enabling sort of um, more flexible practices. The other good that I saw was models of care, um, and particularly in involving the entire interprofessional team. So we were looking at different ways in which we could contribute to staffing our units. And by doing that, we were thinking out of the box and we were thinking about uh, different ways of leveraging certain members of the healthcare team and optimizing their scopes of practice. So I thought that was something that was really positive, although contentious at times. And then finally, um, as much as we say, you know, let's be careful about technology, and I absolutely agree with that, there was quite a bit of value add that we did um, achieve through the use of technology. We pushed our thinking in terms of how technology could play more of an active role in meeting the needs of our patients. And I think patients at times appreciated it. There were some unintended consequences at times, but let's harness those situations where the consequences were actually good and patients were given greater access to care in a more expeditious way. So that's the first point. The second point is related to wellness. I know we've always talked about wellness as a healthcare system, but not to the degree to which we need to amp up our focus on wellness now. It is a serious matter. Every healthcare organization needs to have a focus in a deep way in this area. I'm not sure any of us really know what the, what the key is in terms of enabling wellness. We need to listen to our staff, get a better understanding of what's most important to them in terms of their health and well-being, and start focusing in those areas in a very deep way. And then finally, I'll, I would say nursing leadership was key in enabling success in, in a lot of different ways in responding to the pandemic. We need nursing leaders who lead with confidence, trust, and transparency. And we found that that was deeply uh, effective uh, during the pandemic. I would say that those are my three points that I think we need to sort of, you know, be mindful of as we move forward. So Kathleen, uh, similar to Rue, I strongly support that we keep the things, we keep the learning that we achieved through the pandemic and the practices that have been now incorporated into how we care. So that would be about um, different models of service uh, when required and the technology supports, practice models, all those kinds of things. But in addition then I would say, uh, one, the importance of nursing leadership. 
we have a professional obligation as leaders to support the education, the mentorship, the career planning of leaders into the future. And right now, I think we could be in a bit of trouble with regards to how we're selling leadership and management uh, to the new nurses entering the profession. A really sharp focus on workforce needs and planning uh, is, is essential. We need to focus on more than the tasks that we're performing and focus on the larger uh, role of nursing in the healthcare system. And then finally, I would say what we we've appreciated through the pandemic is a unified voice for nursing, both nationally and at the provincial levels. And I am very hopeful that we have learned the benefit of that unified voice and we're able to retain that into the future. Thank you so much for participating in this conversation today, Irene Andrus and Rue Tagger. It is always a pleasure to speak with you, and I hope that your messages get to the right people. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It's been such a privilege to talk with you today, and I'm looking forward to more of these kinds of opportunities. Thank you for having the opportunity to reflect on our experience as nursing leaders during the pandemic. It's been good to be able to solidify our thinking. I mean, day to day, you, you don't have the opportunity to really sort of think about what your collective insights are. And, and I'm hopeful that this was helpful to the audience. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks to Longwoods Publishing for supporting this podcast. And please share this link with your colleagues and others in your network. Thank you.